and then come right back in here and our kids are going to be sharing a, a, a program with you and I know you'll be blessed if you hang, hang, hang around, so even if you weren't planning on it, especially if you weren't planning on it, we encourage you to stay. It'll be a time of joy and laughter and uh, some encouragement. If you have your Bibles, we want to invite you to Philippians chapter, to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And we're going to start there, and then we're going to turn to a passage that provides a commentary on Philippians 2.8. We're, we're continuing to, as we, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we're continuing to, to unfold this beautiful Christ hymn that, that reveals the humility of our Messiah in coming to earth. And we saw how he took on uh, humanity Remaining God, yet pouring himself out for us. And we've seen how this, this act of servanthood is, is a, uh, a picture for us to follow. We're, we're supposed to walk in his footsteps. And then we come to verse 8. And it tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death, even to death on a cross. Jesus' humility didn't simply extend to the humble nature of his birth, of taking on humanity as the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all heaven and earth. It didn't end there. That was just a stop along the way as he went to the cross, his purpose for coming. And, and the Apostle Paul tells us that his humility, it, it, it manifested itself so profoundly that he said it even it even got to the point where he died, and it says, even to death on a cross. The cross for Jesus, N.T. Wright says, is not a difficult episode to be got through on the way to a happy ending. It's precisely God's way of standing worldly power and authority on its head. As we think about what it means to be humble, and that's, that's the whole idea of this passage, humility that leads to unity in the church. As we think about this, Paul brings it right before he goes into his, his great crescendo of the glory of Jesus, which we'll look at next week. Right before he gets there, he says, listen, this humility got to a point, he got so low in his service and his loving just heart being poured out for us. He said he got so low that he even went to the cross. Now elsewhere, the Apostle Paul sort of exposits the cross for us. And so we're going to, to leave Philippians. We'll, we'll come back right at the end of our time here and flip over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is telling the Corinthian believers just how central the cross is to everything that we do. You know, there are, there are some things that we do in life that it feels like you do it every day or it's a part of everything that you, you think about. These things have become that for us. The phones, we just, we panic if we don't have it with us. It's just constantly there, always around. And for Paul, the idea of the cross was always in the background. In fact, most of the time it was in the foreground. He was bringing it to our attention. He was saying over and over again, the cross is central. And yet he recognized that that was not intuitive to, to the way we think, to the way the world thinks. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about the cross. 
And as we, as we springboard from Philippians 2.8 and think about Jesus' obedience even going to death on the cross, we learn a little bit more about it from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so we see, first of all, that, that in, in these verses remind us of the, the, the foolishness of the cross. In verse 18, Paul says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who are being saved. He goes on in verse 21 to say, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. The Jews ask for signs and the, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The reason that the cross was central to the, the preaching of Paul is he realized that all the good that we experience as his followers, it blossoms from the seeds of the cross. It's rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. But this is a foolish message to the world around us. It's foolish for several reasons. It's foolish because of what it represents. The cross, for goodness sakes, is the symbol of our hope. This would have been insane to the first century hearer. Sometimes we sing here the song, Old Rugged Cross, and there's a line in there that goes, So despised by the world. Well, there's a reason for that. The cross was a shocking image in the ancient world. It represented evil. It represented shame. It represented punishment, humiliation, ostracization. Everything, everything about the cross was bad. D.A. Carson says that equivalent image today might be a, a Hiroshima cloud or an Auschwitz gas chamber. It was that audacious to use the cross as your central message, as a representative symbol. It's become, it's become pretty commonplace for us to wear a cross pendant or maybe uh, to, to have that uh, hang, hanging in our home. But in the first century, that would have been ridiculous to conceive of because of what it represented. Paul did not simply commend the cross. He goes as far to equate it with the power of God. But it's not just... The, the, the cross isn't just foolish because of what it represents, but it's foolish in how it saves. He says there in verse 21, he says, he said, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. This, this, was, not the, this was not the way that the, the wisdom-seeking Corinthians would have thought to accomplish salvation. You accomplished it through, through your, what you, you knew, your, your wisdom, your knowledge, your understanding, and your rhetorical abilities to communicate that knowledge. The, the more intelligent you were, the more impressive you were. And Paul says that's not how this gospel thing works. If you want to be impressive, you embrace the cross through faith. He doesn't tell them to work for it. He doesn't tell them to go to school for it. He says, this message is foolish because 
God saves those who believe. He doesn't save those who, who have a great education or, or, or because of their education, I should say, or because of their hard works or because of their, their tremendous knowledge, their ability to just destroy the competition when, it come, when Jeopardy comes on TV or something. He says, listen, you're saved through belief, through faith in Jesus. It's foolishness because not only we're saved through faith, but because it's, it's a message of Christ's death. Verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling blocks, a stumbling block for Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentile. You have Gentiles to the one side. It, it was, it was, they just couldn't get over it. Like, how is, how did God come to earth? That doesn't work. And then God died. God was supposed to be the victorious, conquering Messiah, the Jews said. They stumbled over this message. And then he said for the Gentiles, especially for those in the Greek-speaking world there in Corinth, it was, it was just too simple, too easy. We don't, we don't deal in the, the filthy realm of crucifixions. That's, that's weird. We're putting our faith in someone who died in the most humiliating and awful way? You know this, but crucifixion in the Roman world was not only a painful execution, but it was also, it was also public humiliation. Someone said that the, the mocking and the jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, but they were encouraged as part of the spectacle. It was built into the process. It was a very public thing. Crucifixion then became a form of entertainment in those days. It was reserved for the dregs of society, slaves and criminals. No, no free man and, and no citizen of Rome was ever crucified. It was inconceivable, therefore, that God's son should end his life in such a humiliating way. In one of his eloquent speeches, Cicero several times spoke of the horror of crucifixion. For example, he once said this. He said, from the very name, the very name of the cross is absent not only from the body of Roman citizens, but also from their mind, their eyes, their ears. In other words, citizens, citizens wouldn't show up to the crucifixion. They wouldn't even talk about it. It was only for the bottom rung of society. Fleming Rutledge has said, according to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposely absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. This is precisely why the message of the cross is foolishness. But even still, Paul would say in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, my brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we keep circling this idea of humility is because it runs so against the grain of our natural inclinations. Even now when we reflect on the cross, even for those of us who are believers, we, we still can kind of cringe at some of these descriptions. We think that's, that's my representation, that's my symbol, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm supposed to, like, that's supposed to define me here. For the... First century Christian, or for the first century hearers, especially for those Jews, a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms, a uniting of opposites. The Messiah meant 
power and splendor, triumph, crucifixion, power, splendor, and triumph. Crucifixion meant weakness, humiliation, and defeat. The two didn't seem to go together. And no wonder this message produced different reactions. But not only is this message foolish because of what it represents and because of how it saves, but it's also foolish because of who it saves, the people it saves. Jesus didn't didn't come to save the righteous, he said. He didn't come to save the people who had it all together. When we choose people for things, whether it's on the playground and we're picking sides for a kickball team, whether, whether you're, you're picking your, your team at work, you're try, you have a special project to work on, or if you play fantasy football, you go after the very best, the most skilled, the brightest, the talented. You look for the qualities that will shine the most, that make your team shine the most. Sports, you know, NFL owners on draft day aren't looking through like, okay, who's, who's, the, who's the guy here that just needs a pat on the back? Like, you know, he's just, nobody's going to give him a chance. Maybe we'll use our first round pick on just a, just sort of a, a attaboy or a just like, hey, we see you and we want to encourage you today. No, they're not thinking that. They want the person that's going to help their team shine. But salvation's not like that. This passage goes on to say, look at, in verse 26, who it is that gets saved. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. God didn't choose you and bring you into his family because he he couldn't live without your special skills and gifts. He brought you in his immense love because you chose to humble yourself before him. And and, and if if you've done that, the Bible says he has saved you He has brought you into his family. Not because you said, I got this. Hold on. I'll take care of things. But because you said, I got nothing. I I, I can do nothing to save myself. The message of the cross is foolishness. But second, and just briefly, we see the humility of the cross. The humility of the cross. We've already talked about how humiliating a crucifixion could be. And we see now, even just in Paul's description of us in verses 26 through 28, it's it's just a reminder that we don't, you you can't stand next to the cross and exalt yourself at the same time. It's either you or the cross. It's one or the other. You can't be throwing your resume around and your credentials your degrees, and at the same time be able to boast only in the cross. It's one or the other. And, and, and Paul here is just, like, I, had, I had to believe that there were believers reading this that it's like, what do you mean not many wise, not many powerful, not many who had a good birth? Like, 
What are you saying about us, Paul? It's kind of like a little punch in the gut. But he said, listen, you're not believers. And he also, he adds, not many of you. God, God does save those who have PhDs. And God will save people who, who have accomplished great things or the wealthy. There's a reason, as we mentioned last week, that God told that rich young ruler, it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because whether it's your wealth, your position, your accomplishments, whatever it is, it's easy to bring all that with you and say, look, here's why you should take me. Here's why you should choose me. And Paul says the cross does the opposite. It brings us to a place of humility. There was a philosopher in the second century by the name of Celsus who once mockingly wrote of believers. This was written about AD 178. He said this, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody's a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the most vulgar, the most uneducated persons. They're like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms convening in mud. <laughs> this, this was recognized by unbelievers. And the Christians were like, yeah, you're about right. That's us. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. You got it. What was foolishness to one was glory to another. But it's amazing how God uses the foolish things to turn the world upside down. He used the foolishness of the cross, and he used the foolishness of the preaching of the cross to, to spread Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. Chrysostom would say later on, writing in the 4th century, in human terms, it was not possible for fishers to get the better of philosophers. But that's what happened by the power of God's grace. Fishers, fishermen, got the better of the philosophers. Why does God work that way? Verse 29 tells us, so that no one may boast in his presence. All the glory goes to Jesus. But in order to get to that place of exaltation, it requires us following in his path of humility. Those of you uh, who have heard me over the years know that one of my heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, and, and, and those of you who know her story know that she was uh, paralyzed in a diving accident when she was 17, became a quadriplegic, and God has used her throughout her life. I think she's in her upper 70s now as she's continued to just proclaim the gospel and to put the, the, the focus and the glory on on the cross of Christ. And one time she was in a ladies' restroom during a Christian women's conference, and a well-meaning woman who was putting on her lipstick in, in the mirror, in front of the mirror, said, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. And several other women who were in the bathroom there nodded and they said, How do you do it? How how do you do that? They asked. Johnny replied, I don't do it. Let me tell you how it works. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. 
When I listen to her make coffee, I pray, oh Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, dress me, sit me up in a chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't even have a smile to take into the day, but you do, Lord. May I have yours? God, I need you so desperately. So one of the women asked, well, what happens then when your friend comes through that bedroom door? I turn my head toward her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine, it's God's. And so, she said, gesturing to her paralyzed legs, whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. That kind of joy only comes from a place of humility. It comes from a place of saying, I can't, Jesus, but you can. That's why Jesus will tell us to take up your cross daily. Because this isn't a one-time decision. We don't, we don't play a moving hymn at the end of the service today and you come forward and dedicate your life to taking up your cross and then that's that. This is a daily decision to say, I can't do this, God. Whatever your struggles are, most of us don't face the kinds of things that Johnny faces, but we face things that get, get to us every day. You know what they are. You know who they are. And it requires us saying, Jesus, I can't do this today. I need your love. Can I borrow it today? It requires us saying, Jesus, I don't have a smile for this person. I don't have a kind word for this person. I, I, I don't have a desire to do this for you. I don't want to share Jesus with that coworker. I don't want to go to this Christmas gathering and see that person. Can I borrow your love today? The love that, that was poured out on Calvary, can I have that today to extend to the people around me? The humility of the cross means that I don't have it together. And I'm not going to pretend like I do. And that's what Jesus, that was Jesus' heartbeat, was stooping and, and pouring himself out for others. And that's what Paul points us to here in 1 Corinthians 1. And then lastly, we see the power of the cross. The power of the cross. Paul talks about, if you take some time to read this passage later on, you'll see that Paul talks about the power of God several times here. In chapter 1, verse 18, again in verse 24, and then getting into chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says this as he's talking about having come to them and pro proclaimed the gospel. He said, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not be best based on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, for the Greek-speaking world, being able to, to captivate people with rhetoric and to use words and inflection and, and say just the right things to grip hearts was, was a real gift, and it was looked upon highly. And Paul said, I didn't come to you that way. I just came in simplicity because I didn't want you to say, wow, you got to hear Paul. That man is spellbinding. He says, I don't want that. I want people to say, the power of God did a mighty work among us. That's what I want people to say. 
I want our faith to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit's work to grip hearts and lives. You, you see, if we go back to Philippians chapter 2 and we're trying to become the kind of church that humbly serves one another and is, and is a church that is walking united, we, we, can't, we can't do it without this power. Paul's, Paul's word to us today would be the same message he had for the Philippians and for the Corinthians. He says, I want your faith to rest on the power of God. Not on anybody's gifts or abilities. Not in numbers. Not in, not in a, putting together a great worship service, a great children's program. I, I want the power to rest. I want your, your faith and trust to rest in the very power of Almighty God. My brothers and sisters... That's the natural outworking of this life of humility, is that we get to see the power of the cross at work in ways that we can't explain, because it doesn't make sense. The cross is about weakness, not about power, from a human perspective. Some of you, like me, <clears throat> grew up on the classic cartoons, and one of my favorites was Popeye. The only reason I ever ate a piece of spinach in my life was because of Popeye. I remember we, we, we would grow it out in the garden, and I, <clears throat> I'd be walking out there, and, Mom, is this, this is spinach, right? Like, yeah. And I remember just grabbing that stuff, even with the dirt still on it. I'm just, like, throwing it down, just waiting for the, <clears throat> never happened. <laughs> still hasn't happened. <laughs> but even with Popeye, it made a little bit of sense, like, not the immediate results, but spinach is really healthy for you. It's high in nutrients, and it's, it's a good thing to eat a lot of spinach. You'll have some health benefits from it. So it made a little bit of sense. But with the cross, it makes zero sense that all of our power is rooted in this place of humiliation and ridicule and death. And it's because we're looking to the crucified one, and we say, God, I don't have anything to bring. But I lay it down before you, and I'm, 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 I lay my sin, I lay my shame. I'm just, I'm here, and I need you. That's why Paul could say his message came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because the real power of the gospel does not lie in the presentation or in the speaker or in, in the program. It's the supernatural work of God's Spirit. That's why Paul would say in other places things like this. First, Romans one sixteen. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the message of the cross, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Without the lowliness of the crucifixion, there is no gospel, no power. And so when we read in Philippians chapter 2, Verse 8, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. We know that we're reading a loaded statement. That it's just bursting at the seams with, with hope, with power, with wisdom. That's all tied to humility. To this daily life of Jesus I need you. Make much of you in my life. 
I long for there to be less of me and more of you, Jesus. I can't do it today, Jesus. I need you. And when that spirit begins to permeate our hearts, and, and then we get together as a body, and it begins to permeate our midst, great things can happen. The power of God is unleashed when there's less of us and more of him. God, grant us the, the heart and the eyes to see that, to repent of our pride, to turn from self and sin, and to turn to Jesus. So as we close today, I want us to just ask, in what ways do I need the cross today? In what ways do you and I need the cross of Jesus today? For some of us, it may be to be saved because we've never embraced Jesus. We've never understood or believed the gospel. And, and today, the Spirit of God is saying, that's you. Believe. Believe in the, the foolishness of the cross. Believe in Jesus. But for others who have already trusted in Christ as our Savior, we need the cross today to destroy our pride, to abolish this self-sufficiency that we as North American Christians are just so good at. Most of us, we, we have stuff, we have money, we have cars, we have things that we can do. To, we, have, we have health insurance or life insurance. We have things that make our life easier, that cushion us from the blows of life. And some of us can get in this trap thinking that I've got it, we're, we're together, and we, we need the cross every day in our affluent society to remind us that I don't have it together. I can't solve the biggest problems I have in life. I need Jesus. We need the cross to remind us that we're welcome without distinction. You heard it. Paul says, Jew, Greek, doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. Jesus modeled this by going to the highways and byways. He went to the weakest, to the, to the, the biggest sinners, as it were to the outcast, to the sick and poor and lame. And he said, come, you're welcome. And people are like, why are, you, why are you bothering with these folks? Kids, we talked about that last week. Why are you bothering with them? And Jesus said, the kingdom is like this little child. The broken, the I don't have anything, I don't have it figured out. That's the heart of the gospel. We need, to remind, we need the cross to remind us that all of us are welcome. There's no distinction when it comes to the cross. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what your present involves. The choices you've made or even are making today, you're welcome. The cross says you're welcome. Finally, we need the power of the cross. We can't we can't do the kinds of things that, that God wants us to do without Jesus. <laughs> I was talking to Brother Ed Novak before the service, and, and he said, I'm, I'm convinced that it all, all comes down to love. I said, yeah, you're right. That, 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 Jesus said, that, that's how you're going to know who my followers are, by your love for one another. But we can't do that Unless the power of the cross is propelling us forward 
toward one another, and then beyond these walls toward an unbelieving world who desperately, desperately needs the love of Jesus. The power of the cross is that fuel to take us into a lost and hurting world. My brothers and sisters, as we close today, let us draw our hearts and our minds, eyes to the cross. It's a message of foolishness. It's a message of humility, but it's a message of power. And it's through the cross, because of the cross, that we're gathered here today. And it's because of the cross that we have something to offer to the world around us. It's because of the cross that we have hope. During this Christmas season, people need that more than ever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Turn our hearts to the cross of Jesus Christ. May we glory in the cross. May we rejoice in the cross. May we boast only in the cross. Spirit of God, you've given us a cross to carry, a cross to carry before we ever get the crown. I pray, Father, that you would equip us today to to carry that cross, whatever that looks like, to lay down our prerogatives, to lay down our agendas, and to humble ourselves before you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving up the glory of heaven to please your Father and to come rescue us. You denied yourself the adoration that was due to your name, and you came as as humbly as you possibly could in your birth, in your life, and in your death. Show us how we can enter into that life, God. The cross-bearing life. Because you're going to show us next week that that's the only way up. That's the only way to ultimate exaltation. It's through bearing the cross. Father, empower us. We, I don't understand how it works. But I hear your word and so we believe it. That the message of the cross is, is power today. It's power to save in its power to enable us to be holy. Show us what that looks like today. And God, if there's someone here who's never embraced the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that, that you love them so very much that you would give your one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not be separated from you for all eternity, but will have eternal life. They embrace the crucified and risen Christ today. Now may a dying Savior's love, a risen Savior's joy, an ascended Savior's power, and a returning Savior's hope rest upon your hearts and homes. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. God bless you as you go.